This is Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national and international stories, focusing on journalism and communication issues, news and politics. Now, the latest edition of Update One. I'm Adam Cano, and joining me today is Brian Belanger. Brian is curator of the National Capital Radio and Television Museum, which opened its doors in 1999 and is currently in Bowie, Maryland. Brian, thanks for joining me on Update One. Well, thanks for inviting me. Before we talk about what's on display, can you tell me a little bit about the genesis behind starting the museum? Well, it goes back about four decades ago. Uh, it was in 1984 when a group of us in the Washington, Baltimore area who were interested in radio history and radio technology created a new club called the Mid-Atlantic Antique Radio Club. Uh, website is maarc.org. It turns out there are enough antique radio collectors in the area that this club uh, grew very quickly to several hundred members, and I've been with it since it started, and it's a wonderful organization that's you know been a lot of fun to uh, be a member of. So anyway, not long after the club was formed, we began thinking about the possibility of creating a, a museum to share our interest in radio with the general public. By the uh, early 1990s, we uh, launched a formal effort to accomplish that. We formed a nonprofit corporation, applied for and got IRS 501c3 status. So uh, the museum is affiliated with but legally separate from the radio club. And we began to uh, sign up members. At first, we uh, found places for temporary exhibits in the area, for example, uh, at several public libraries, and we got some display cases at the George Washington University that we could use. But uh, it was clear that uh, we needed to have a permanent location, so we began looking for one. In the late 1990s, we heard about a historic home in Bowie, Maryland, called the Harmel House. This place was owned by the city, but it was unoccupied at the time. Now, it turns out that Bowie is a town that already had several museums and is uh, more sympathetic than most towns to hosting museums. And so the city was trying to determine a use for this place called the Harmel House. We made a presentation to the mayor and council and promised that if the city would lease us the building for a modest cost, we would create a museum that would uh, bring visitors to the city. The council liked the idea, voted unanimously to go ahead with the idea. And so we opened our doors in June 1999, have been there ever since, and have a very nice working relationship with the city. And the city is pleased that the museum has had visitors from all 50 states and 30 foreign countries, and we currently have a five-star rating on TripAdvisor. So it's, it's worked out well. And for those not familiar with the Washington, D.C. area, Bowie is uh, east of the city, uh, just outside of the Capitol Beltway. So at what points in the history of broadcasting does the museum pick up and end, and is there a sweet spot for your collection? Yes. Our museum really seeks to tell the story of radio and television in American homes. And so the emphasis is on the period from about 1920, when entertainment radio really got started, and uh, say about the 1960s, by which time television was pretty common in American living rooms. We have some artifacts from earlier eras and a few from later periods, but that time window is where we have our emphasis. I had the pleasure of touring your museum recently with other members of the National Press Club's broadcast podcast team, and wanted to talk with you about three artifacts that stood out for me as really being remarkably ahead of their time. 
the first one is you showed us a radio that had a built-in printer so people could have effectively their own newspapers printed, I suppose, uh, overnight. Can you talk a little bit about who made that unit, uh, what it cost back in the day, and, and why it missed the mark? Sure. Yeah, you're talking about a, a device called a Crosley Rideau from 1939. Cincinnati-based Crosley Company was a major radio manufacturer from the 1920s through the 1950s. And uh, Crosley Broadcasting owned a number of uh, radio stations, the most famous of which was station WLW in Cincinnati, which uh, for a time in the 1930s actually had a half million watt transmitter. So beginning in 1939, Crosley offered this radio accessory device uh, in a beautiful wood cabinet, and they called it a Rido, R-E-A-D-O. Uh, it was kind of like a fax machine that slowly printed out a strip of paper. So the stations would broadcast in the middle of the night when most radio stations were off the air, and this machine would print out both text and pictures. And so when the family woke up in the morning, there would be a newspaper uh, on the floor delivered uh, by a radio broadcast. The printing device uh, was connected to an existing radio that would pick up the signals, and instead of the radio output driving a loudspeaker, it drove this Rito printer device. So when it was new, it sold factory-wired for $79.95, although they also offered it in kit form for somewhat less. That's pretty expensive. Uh, $80 in those days would be the equivalent of about $1,500 today, so it was, it was pretty expensive. And at the time, uh, very few families were willing to spend 80 bucks for a Rito when you could buy a newspaper for a nickel. And that was a problem. It was a clever device, but it was just too expensive. And also, in order for it to work well and not print out mistakes, you needed to be close enough to the transmitter so that you had a pretty strong signal. If you were way out in the rural area where the signal was weak, you'd, you'd tend to get mistakes printed. Uh, interestingly enough, RCA came out with a very similar radio fax unit about the same time and for a comparable price, but again, it was just too expensive, so very few of those were sold. And the Rito is one of only a couple of things in the museum we actually had to purchase. They're pretty rare today, and uh, we managed to find it at an antique auction in Ohio. Second, I was really impressed by the radio that had a built-in microphone and a recordable phonograph so that people could make their own recordings and then mail them to friends and family. Sounds like something we all now do on our smartphones without even thinking, right? <laughs> You're absolutely correct. Uh, that was a 1941 Philco radio phonograph that had that, that very unusual feature. Uh, at that time, phonograph records were the standard way to record sound. But it turns out that 41 Philco is not the earliest radio that had that capability. There were other, uh, other models uh, earlier than that that uh, had the recording capability. The record player, if you look at it, has what appears to be two tone arms, one for playing the records and the other tone arm uh, for cutting the grooves when you were recording. And as you point out, there was no internet, no smartphones in those days. So let's say your family lived here in, in DC and uh, grandma lived in Chicago. If it was grandma's birthday, the kids could sing happy birthday into the microphone and uh, cut a little a recording that you could slip in an envelope and mail to grandma in Chicago, who would be delighted at hearing the grandkids singing your happy birthday. I'm guessing that one was also fairly expensive for its time. Yeah, I've been trying to track down what the original price of that was. I haven't been able to track it down yet, but I'm sure it was quite expensive. And then third, speaking of the, you know what we now do with smartphones and other digital devices, you showed us a radio that had a built-in camera. And again, <laughs> I have to wonder 
you know, how many people sort of saw the the relevance of that, um, you know, that we now take for granted in a multimedia world. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting story. And when visit when people visit the museum, uh, they usually think that the idea of having a camera combined with an electronic device is something that came up fairly recently. But as you point out, we have a 1948 Air King camera radio with a leather shoulder strap that you could carry around with. Of course, it wasn't a digital camera. You had to load it with roll film, and after you took a roll of pictures, you'd remove the film, send it off to the to the place to get the prints made. But it's true that the idea of combining a camera with an electronic device is actually more than 70 years old. Amazing. Those were my three favorites, but I'm, I'm guessing you have your own, right? Well, yeah, there's, there's so many wonderful things. It's, it's hard to, to mention, but I'll mention a couple. We have a 1939 radio, which has the world's first wireless remote control, so you could change stations from your easy chair. It has a large wooden control box that actually used a telephone-type dial to uh, select which station you wanted. It was called the Philco Mystery Control. Another one of my favorites is a radio that came out just after Prohibition uh, was repealed. And to celebrate the end of Prohibition, it has a built-in bar with whiskey bottles and shot glasses. And <laughs> that's kind of cute. And then I guess the th third thing I'll mention is we actually have two 1931 scanning disc mechanical television sets, one that was in a kit form and one that was a factory-wired set. And people are pretty amazed to find out that there was experimental television being broadcast here in D.C. starting in about 1928. Which is a perfect transition. I want to go on and talk about television because I know we've talked a lot about radio so far, but the museum does have excellent coverage of the history of television from its inception all the way up to a late 1980s Sony Watchman that I distinctly remember uh, seeing when I was uh, in college, uh, a handheld television at the time with a tiny, tiny little screen. So how is the development of that medium television different than radio? Okay, well, there, of course, are a lot of similarities, but I think an important point is television would not have been possible if it hadn't been for the technical progress made in radio, because, you know, you can't do television without vacuum tubes, and vacuum tubes have been developed to make radio possible. But I think there are a few differences. One thing has to do with how do you pay for it? When radio first began in the early 20s, there was a big debate about how to pay the cost of building radio stations. Now, in some countries, particularly in Europe, uh, the federal government operated the radio stations and raised revenue by taxing radio sets. And some people thought that was a good way to go. Some people thought that the best model was for voluntary contributions from listeners, kind of like National Public Radio today. But what happened was an AT&T station in New York started selling commercial time in the early 1920s, and at first was severely criticized. A lot of people complained that Selling commercials was tacky and annoying, and some people still think that today. But it caught on, and pretty soon all the stations were doing it. And so uh, before long, it became clear that here in the United States, selling commercials was the way to support the development of radio. And, of course, when television came along, there really wasn't any debate about it. You know, the idea of selling commercials to pay for it is what we adopted. Some other comments, uh, when entertainment radio first began, there were literally hundreds of small companies making radios. But as uh, competition uh, heated up, uh, most of the small ones dropped by the wayside, leaving uh, a smaller number of major companies, companies like Philco, Zenith, RCA, and so on. 
And in the early days of television, at first there were a number of small companies that tried making television sets, but it's a lot more expensive technology and uh, very few of them lasted long. So there weren't nearly as many companies making television sets as uh, had been making radios in the early days of radio. Color television required a lot of R&D expenses. It's a very complicated technology. And the smaller radio companies really couldn't afford to do that. So it, it turned out that RCA was the company that gets credit for doing much of the R&D that enabled us to have color television. And uh, fortunately, RCA was willing to grant patent licenses to competitors so that a number of companies then could offer color TV sets. And there's one other thing I'll mention, and that is, of course, that television requires a lot more spectrum space per station than radio. And so there are many, many fewer television stations than there are radio stations. So I think those are the main comments I would make. You talked about the different devices that were created and what it took to get them to fruition. And of course, you have an astonishing number of them on display in the facility that you use in Bowie. But I understand that that's just a small portion of the overall collection. What else is there? And how do you decide what to show? Well, actually, we're kind of like the Smithsonian in that we only have a small portion of our total collection on exhibit at any given time. We have a storage building in Davidsonville, Maryland, that is sort of full to overflowing with all kinds of wonderful stuff. So, so we have changing exhibits. For example, in 2018, it was the 100th anniversary of World War I, so we had a special exhibit where we filled a room with the kind of radio equipment used by the Army and the Navy during that first war. And that space right now, we have a temporary exhibit showing what you would see if you would visit a radio station in the 1950s, things like turntables, microphones, mixers, teletype news bulletin machine, and so on. We're planning a new temporary exhibit. We recently acquired a wonderful collection of memorabilia about a, uh, a guy named Pick Temple, who was a popular cowboy star here in D.C. during the early days of television. We have his guitar, his costumes, plus lots of videos of his, of his early television show that we'll be putting into an exhibit. So we do have changing exhibits. And the museum itself is, of course, about more than just artifacts. I mean, I understand you have some interactive elements, especially for younger visitors. Well, yeah, that's right. Uh, in addition to all the artifacts, we have a fabulous library with thousands of books and magazines, uh, both technical stuff about radio television, uh, service manuals, but also, uh, you know, history books about the history of radio and TV and performance and stuff. So that's available. But with regard to kids, I think it's fair to say that the museum is probably not appealing to very small children. But when you get into, say, uh, middle school and upper school, I think there are things that kids would enjoy. Uh, for example, we have a sound effects demonstration where kids can use coconut shells to make the sound of horses' hooves. They can shake an aluminum sheet to make the sound of thunder. And we have some actual NBC sound effects devices that they can, they can try out. We have a special program for Brownie Troops and Cub Scouts where we, we charge for that, where we teach the kids the difference between radio waves and sound waves. We introduce concepts like amplitude and frequency, let them speak into a microphone and see what their voices look like on an oscilloscope, you know, things like that. On that educational side, you have classes, I understand, for adults, everything from fixing old radios and, and TVs and things like that, right? That's right. Uh, and that's kind of a funny story because several years ago, we were concerned about the fact that very few people today 
know how to service a 1920s or 1930s vacuum tube radio. And so we started offering this vintage radio repair class. And we didn't expect it to have much interest, but it turns out every time we've offered the class, it's been full. And we're uh, getting ready to gear up to uh, start it up again. It's a class for uh, three hours a week for 10 weeks. We teach things like radio theory, how vacuum tubes work, how to solder properly, how to use test equipment. And uh, students actually get to work on uh, fixing an old radio. So that's been quite popular. With regard to education, we publish a quarterly journal called Dials and Channels with lots of interesting articles on radio and TV history. With regard to education, we offer biweekly Zoom sessions with interesting topics about radio history and TV history. And uh, our members of the museum receive an emailed series called Artifact of the Week, where we send around a one-page thing with a picture of something interesting from the collection and tell a bit, of, a bit about its stories. So those are some of the things we do with regard to education. Museums, like many cultural attractions, have really suffered during the pandemic. You mentioned membership a moment ago. Can you talk a little more about how your museum is funded and what individuals and organizations can do to help ensure its survival? Sure. The basic membership is $25 a year, and many of our members are generous and put in more than that. The museum is largely operated by volunteers. We do have two part-time staff members that are paid, but most of the work is done by volunteers, and so that helps to keep the cost down. Let's see, I think we have about 260 members the last time I counted. The classes that we teach bring in some income. We restore radios uh, for uh, members, and that brings in some income. We have lots of donations coming in. We typically have maybe, oh, maybe 20 donations a month, and we often get you know, like people donating way more radios than we can possibly keep. And so in many cases, we will restore them to good operating condition and uh, sell the restored radios in, a, in our shop. And that brings in some income, too. We're not in danger of going out of business for bankruptcy, but we would love to be able to expand. And so we would love to have more members and uh, more donations so that, uh, you know, that we could do more. On a personal note, you enjoyed a noteworthy career in the private and public sector, including at the National Institute for Standards and Technology. What do you think the lesson for today's technology innovators and consumers is based on what's on display in your museum? <laughs> well, gosh, I, I don't consider myself a prophet, but now let me make a couple of comments. First of all, radio and television are very complicated technologies. No one person gets credit for inventing either radio or television. It took a lot of people with you know, incremental steps to make possible what we have today. And of course, with our things like smartphones today, they're very complicated technology, and it's not like one person is going to make a breakthrough. It takes a, a very sophisticated laboratory with lots of good engineers to be able to make progress. And I think, you know, I think that's going to continue to happen. What often happens is people are able to conceive of new technologies long before you can actually do it. A good example of that, there was an English scientist named Archibald Campbell Swimpton. And back in 1911, he gave a public lecture at which he described an all-electronic television set, went to the blackboard, and he described how you could use a cathode ray tube to display the image and a, an electronic pickup camera tube to capture the images. And basically laid out what a modern television system would look like. But at the time, you couldn't actually do it because, for example, they didn't have vacuum tubes that could amplify well at, at high frequencies. So it took 
several decades more before you got all the pieces put together that would actually make it work. And I think that's, you know, what's likely to happen again is people will look at the future and make predictions about what might be possible, but it, you know, may take quite a few years before it can actually happen. Lastly, if you could go back and talk to any person in the history of radio or television, do you have a favorite? Who would it be? And, and what would you say to them? <laughs> ah, good question. Well, there are several people I would love to be able to interview. I think if I had to pick one, I might pick David Sarnoff, who was the CEO of RCA during its glory years. Now, a lot of people didn't like him. He could be ruthless. He had a huge ego and so was disliked, especially by his competitors. But I admire Sarnoff because he built RCA from almost a startup company to a preeminent world-class electronics company. And one of the reasons he was successful is he took a long-range view. He stressed, you know, having a really strong R&D department. So unlike a lot of CEOs today that are only worried about next quarter profits, he was always looking ahead and thinking about what kind of R&D do we need to do today in order to make our company successful down the road. When his son, Robert, took over RCA, the company started to go down the tubes. And Japanese competitors like Sony and Panasonic took over leadership in that industry. So I would love to ask David Sarnoff if he thinks that that could have been prevented, if it would have been possible for the U.S. to continue to have the lead in consumer electronics. I think that would have been an interesting topic. Absolutely. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time. Well, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thanks for visiting the museum and thanks for helping us publicize it. And love to have you come back again when we have some new exhibits. Brian Belanger is curator of the National Capital Radio and Television Museum. It's open on Fridays plus Saturday and Sunday afternoons. You can learn more about the museum at ncrtv.org. For Update One, I'm Adam Cano. Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to Update One Podcast. That's Update the Number One Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One. Update One.